Welcome to Doing a World of Good, a podcast from the American Institute of Chemical Engineers and generously supported by Raj and Kumla Gupta, shining the light on the positive works of our members and supporters. I'm your host, Bob Norp. There's enormous pressure on students to choose their career path. However, most of them aren't equipped to make that decision without any practical experience. After all, we start off our careers hired for what we can do in advance based on what we've done. Without a clear understanding of what a career path entails and the tools to reassess along the way, a student is setting themselves up for failure. Which is why today we're talking to three of the curators of the Career Discovery Method, a practical approach to helping students identify their skills and then match them to real-world marketplace needs. First up, we have Dr. Monty Alger, Monty has decades of experience both in the commercial and educational sectors and is currently a professor of chemical engineering at Penn State. And he also just happens to be the 2020 president of the AICHE. So welcome, Monty. Thank you very much. Now, next up is Dr. John Jordan. John is a veteran educator, the author of six books on a range of subjects that include 3D printing, robotics, information, and technology, and is currently Professor of Practice in Syracuse University's School of Information Studies. Thanks for being here, John. Glad to be here. Thanks for the invitation. And finally, we welcome Dr. Daryl Veligal. Daryl is a distinguished professor of chemical engineering at Penn State University and the president of Noecular Processes Company. Welcome, Daryl. Thanks, Bob. Thanks for having us here. Now, let's start off with the obvious question, gentlemen. What does career discovery entail, and how does it fundamentally differ from the traditional educational approaches to preparing students to launch their career? Mani, perhaps you'd be the best person to start this off with. What, what, what would you say career discovery is all about? Yeah, thanks. <clears throat> this goes back uh, several decades to uh, when I was much younger and the whole question of what do you do and how do you think about your career? And what I've learned over the years is that nobody knows what they want to do. And it's not that they don't have an idea. It's just as you get out into the world, you meet people and you learn things and your career tends to move in in, in different directions. So based on that, uh, we started developing some ways to think about skills and career planning when I was at GE and then beyond. And when I joined the university, uh, we started talking about how might we use some of these uh, tools. The big thing is to... We, we've reduced it down to a one-page little summary where we have students, anyone make a little skills grid where they look at what skills and experiences they had and use that to get them thinking about uh, what have they done, what would they like to do, and most importantly, where they might like to go. And one of the big questions that very often people ask is, what do you want to do with your life? Uh, we've turned that around and we ask people something different. We say, what might you like to do? You want to be a professor, you want to be an entrepreneur, you want to be a Nobel Prize winner. What things might you like to do and what experiences and things do you need to, 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 uh, to, to have to be able to get there? And when we do this, we get people thinking much more broadly about where they might go and then not just inventorying what they've done today, but the skills and experiences that they like to have in the future. As we thought about this, the, the, the model of today of, of, of these linear linear practices are, are giving away to very much integrated activities with the, the web and the technology. So we think of a lot of things as education as a car wash. 
where if you start at one end, you put in the money, you come out the other end four years later. We're trying to get students to think much more about what they might do, how they might do it, and how do they have experiences along the way. And then when they get into the workplace, it doesn't stop. This goes on for your whole career and your whole lifetime. You know, one of the most interesting things I, I hear when you tell me about this is the fact that it's it's taking a very engineering type approach to the problem. It's it's applying the principles of problem solving and figuring out what the end result is and how to keep things as safe as possible, yet give you the maximum efficiency. I mean, this is a very engineering approach. Am I wrong in saying that? I think it's very much an engineering approach. One of the things that, that uh, Monty, this is Darrell, and, and so when Monty and I taught a course on this a couple of years ago, he really emphasized this idea of beginning with the end in mind. And so you're projecting where do you want to be, and let's work backward from there. So if you're, if you're thinking out five years, ten years, where, what, what types of career paths might I want to go on, then you work back from there and figure out, okay, I'm on this playground. We're at Penn State University. I'm on this playground of a university. What experiences and skills and community do I need to gain here in order to reach where I want to be? Well, one of the interesting things that we saw, well, and, and I taught a course with Monty too before Daryl did, that- And this the, is John talking, right? This is John talking. And the, the nature of reflection- the students really have to say, hey, do I like to work inside or outside? Do I like to work on teams or by myself? Do I like speaking in public or do I like really hard problem solving? And there's no right answer. It's really a matter of what are you built to do? And so students, to, do, to, to begin with the end in mind, had to begin with the person under the microscope, as it were. And so that is a little different from the engineering approach that they're used to because instead of a black box, it's themselves. Now, it's interesting. Yeah, can, can I build on I want to yeah, build please, on that. Yeah, please, please do. you know, when you say the engineering approach, you know, we have students make a little grid, but it's the words they put, they, they, they put down and talk about. So I remember one of the first times we did it, a student put up in, in one of the boxes, solved the hot chocolate mixing problem. <laughs> and when she then described what had happened, it was unbelievable. She talked about leadership, teamwork, creativity, problem solving, problem solving. And when you listen to the experiences and things students have done, you realize they're demonstrating a lot of the skills that are needed in today's workplace. So this is not just about I've had math, I've had science, I've had physics. It's how have I applied these things? What kinds of uh, organizations I've been in? What experiences I've had? What, what failures have I had? And how have I learned from it? It's just a wonderfully interesting experience to have when you uh, listen to students talk. Now, help me out here as far as how this all gets started, because uh, two of you are engineers and one of you is an information scientist. So it's kind of an interesting uh, dynamic that brought you all together. How did that happen? Maybe, John, you could talk a little bit about that. Both Monty and I worked in industry before we came to the university. And we both have PhDs, but... Um, have a lot of business experience. Daryl is a lifelong academic and he's the distinguished professor among us. And so um, I was teaching at the business school at Penn State and a colleague of mine sort of put me on to Monty because he wanted someone to talk about entrepreneurship in an engineering course he was teaching. And that was sort of the beginning, I guess, that um, most engineers don't learn about money. And so you learn about optimizing things and making the strongest, best, fastest, most powerful, 
but you don't talk much about who's going to buy it and how much they're going to pay. And so I was brought in from that side. Um, and then, Daryl, you can sort of talk about the, the courses you've taught. Well, I, I think John said it well. I have been an academic for more than 20 years. A few years ago, I started the molecular processes company uh, to help companies with their innovation processes. And so I came pr to it from the other side. I came from the side of thinking, uh, how does an academic think about this? And I came to the industrial side where I've had now a lot of experience in working with how do companies move things forward much more quickly and with, at higher value. And so I think when Monty came to Penn State, it's been, what, five or six years, Monty, that, that you came to Penn State? Uh, yeah. It was a natural fit. Uh, so um, we started getting together. Uh, and so John and Monty and I, we, uh, we've, we've had beers at the local local um, restaurant. and now The and best ideas always happen over beers. <laughs> that's right. And so we've, we've had a lot of time together, and, and that led to an article that we wrote uh, last year that had some of the ideas that we're talking about now. So it's, it's been a something brewing from different sides that has emerged into an article and now a broader thing that we're doing in our various departments and universities. Now, something you both mentioned, you both kind of alluded to the market forces that are out there that are driving the need for this change. Uh, what are the market forces going on right now that are making it necessary to prepare students for careers in engineering um, uh, that are guided by these principles. Can I take that one? Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Okay, yeah, this is John. And so I think this is where the information science comes in because every field, advertising, biotech, education, is now being informed by data and data at new scales compared to what it used to be. Um, many, many engineering processes that instrumentation that five, 10 years ago would have been impossibly expensive or impossibly technically difficult. And now you have data about um, user behavior, you have data about check engine lights, you have data about cable TV set-top boxes at this massive scale so that every profession is having to readjust to being data-driven. And unfortunately, we have a real numeracy problem, you know, in numeracy. Um, and engineering is right in the crosshairs there. And so I think part of this is how do you learn to do data-driven engineering in this new environment? Because obviously engineering's also always been data-driven, but not at this scale and not from this um, breadth of input. So that's part of the career landscape change. Um, and I so think an important thing that John has brought in with this, with this, this whole concept of data is the speed that it starts to accelerate. And I, um, in bringing in that idea of speed, we don't have the same amount of time that we used to in certain positions. Somebody would come out, graduate, have five years, seven years in a position. Now they, they're put into leadership positions much more early. And, and a lot of it's due to the speed that, that uh, from this data-driven atmosphere that, that John is describing. He really brought that in. And I think building on that, I think, you know, in years past, a student might go out or you start off a career in a large company. There'd be some, a lot of support and nurturing to help bring you along. In today's world, it's uh, much more like jumping into the pot and you have to learn how to get going. And uh, I, it's, 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 a very different workplace today, and everyone's struggling with how do we actually put the pieces together and, and, and move forward much much faster. 
But on this on this notion of data, we've also um, partnered or licensed a couple of products now for the last couple of years from a company, Burning Glass. They have an enormous amount of data on jobs and skills and so forth. And when we do reports, it's just amazing to see what are the jobs, what are the skills, and what are the capabilities needed in today's workplace. And this is essentially the picture the students are facing. These are the jobs and these are the skills. And as we've gone through this, uh, Matt Siegelman is the CEO of Burning Glass. You know, he, he has a really great YouTube video. He says, there is not a jobs market, there's a skills market. So if we think about that in today's world, degrees are essentially a bundle of skills. But in today's world, if you graduate as a chemical engineer, you're facing a lifetime of acquiring new skills and new experiences with the pace of change and advancing technology. So we need to think about preparing students, not just to know things, but learn how to learn and to create a way that can acquire these new skills and, and you know, wherever they, wherever they choose, to, choose to go in life. And as, as we've done this and started looking at some of these skills, um, so for example, in chemical engineering, process engineering is a top skill category, which captures a lot of things. This is where we're now talking to companies and asking them, what exactly do you mean by, do you mean by process engineering? What can we do to help prepare students for the workplace? What can we do to create content to not just educate them, but possibly help you internally with your own internal uh, uh, education and training? So one of the things I have is a, a burning glass report. I have skills required for a chemical engineer, a product manager, and a marketing manager. So a chemical engineer, typically if you go into the materials industry, a very obvious next move very often is out of the R&D group, maybe into marketing, product management. The shared transferable skills, burning glass refers to as, as baseline skills, communication, teamwork, and so forth. Those are, those are common to across every job category. The specialized skills, however, tend to vary quite significantly. And so in the past, people usually acquired knowledge through tribal knowledge transfer. Someone would share something with you, you'd meet someone. In today's world, with all of the content that's available, it's, 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 the need is to curate and organize content and say, here, here are things you need to know uh, for these jobs. And this is where we think there's a great partnership with companies and universities, as well as engaging students so they understand how do they begin to think about their life and their future career plans. Let's let's dive a little bit deeper on that because um, I love the process that you outline in the career discovery method, if you want to call it that. But the um, there's this intersection of personal skills assessment with a focus on engaged networking. Um, I find that fascinating because it's a really strategic and pragmatic way of identifying the sweet spot where real business needs match up with specific skill sets. I mean, you're looking deeply at yourself, you're taking that data, you know what kind of skills you have, and you're matching them up to the information you're gathering from all your networking, all the people you're interacting with. Do you find students grasp this concept quickly, or does it take a lot of mentoring? I mean, how do you teach these skills and make them stick with, uh, with the student body? I think well, this is something that requires a lot of experience. You know, learning, uh, if you back up, 20 years in chemical engineering, for instance, students were learning primarily skills. And they had things like the design course where they needed to work together. But because now they need to go into situations where they're going to be interacting with customers much sooner than they used to. They need to bring, yes, their technical knowledge, but they also need to have that personal knowledge. And so that how do you teach it? A big way is through experiences at the, at the university level. 
sometimes in the class, but sometimes external to the class. Uh, but also you have you start to think about internships and co-ops in a little bit different way. They're not just places to to gain technical knowledge, but but to learn how to interact, including with customers. And yeah, and, and let's, go well, let's go. Let's go with John first. Um, th this is um, it's sort of a good news, bad news scenario right now because the good news is that between LinkedIn and uh, other social networking tools, students really can network more powerfully than ever before. The bad news is that corporations are not spending money on training and development the way they used to. Just as an example, a lot of schools used to pay for advanced degrees and tuition assistance, and that has dwindled in the last 15 years. So students now are much more on their own, but they have much more powerful tools to do things. And yeah, I was gonna add to that, Bob, the, uh, yeah. we've been, Daryl and I and John, a course we've evolved is uh, problem solving. And the purpose of the courses is we're teaching students a range of skills, not just engineering, but how to use engineering thinking, business thoughts, entrepreneurship, the lean startup, and so forth, and get put, piece, put pieces together to solve things. So last semester we taught a course and we did a, a semester project. And a professor here at Penn State had bought an old church. And so we made the project, what can Jack do with his church? And so we drove out to the church, students worked on it. And it was at the end of the semester and they made their presentations. It was unbelievably great. I mean, it was so good what they did. And so as we've gone through this, one of the things that's become apparent to me is there's an enormous amount of creative energy and thought in young people today. Companies struggle to have new thoughts and to innovate. If we could harness their thoughts, couple with companies and use them not just to go out and be trained in the world, but to bring new thinking and new skills to an existing world and help reskill the whole workplace and create this uh, connection between the education world and the business world. I think there's, there's an opportunity for everyone to be successful here. Can you go a little bit deeper on that, Monty? Because um, there's... Uh, it's interesting to me that this is not just an educational opportunity, that it's also a career-based opportunity, that you're going to need these skills throughout your career, that businesses are going to benefit from that, that corporations can take this methodology and improve the performance of their employees. Could you explain a little bit more about this and why you believe that to be true? Yeah, so look at one area. There's data and massive data sets are everywhere. And what you can learn today with the available data is, is, is mind-numbing. Students have great facility and understanding of data, manipulating data, but they don't have a good case problem. So we're working on a PhD internship program where we want to prepare students to work out on an internship, a PhD internship, but bring some of these skills that are emerging and then bring them to bear to work on problems that a company may have where a company's actually trying to change their way to do things, say in drug discovery, new materials development. There's radically different business models and, and ways to do this. And John has been teaching a course uh, where he's been engaging students to do some of these things, and he sent me some of the presentations. It's just, it's amazing what they come up with. I mean, John, maybe you want to comment. So one of the things that we've talked about over those many beers and breakfasts <laughs> is, um, you learn skills one at a time in isolation. So you learn thermodynamics, you learn um, calculus, you learn um, 
public speaking and presentation skills. You learn how to write a, an executive email. But in isolation, those skills really don't make much sense. And then you get to a real problem and say, like this church problem, and say, hey, we have to look at financial um, security and, and how are we going to get insurance on this thing? And if it's a bar, it's going to have very different insurance than if it's a, you know, a makerspace. And then you have to look at, okay, does it have enough power to be a makerspace? Does it have enough uh, ventilation to be a, a makerspace with 3D printers? And so integrating those different skills that are learned in isolation into the holistic problem method gets students incredibly excited because now they have a reason to know ventilation. Now they have a reason to know um, building codes. Now they have a reason to know parking. You know, how many parking spaces do we need for a makerspace? Well, that's a knowable question. But if we just talk that in isolation, it's boring as mud. So um, the course that Monty mentioned is an entrepreneurship course I teach for graduate students. And the end project is apply the tools we've used to something you know from your professional life. And as Monty said, the students did just unbelievable work. Um, it, it is truly stunning. Once you give them a live problem, what they can bring to bear on it, um, the creativity, the research, the analytic uh, capabilities, um, there's great work. But if you teach these skills in isolation, I think that's part of the problem. Do you all have some specific anecdotal, you know, evidence to suggest how this approach may be benefiting organizations today that hire individuals who are applying these methods? I mean, I'd love to hear any specific examples of how businesses being improved as a result of this, that chemical engineering processes are being improved. Daryl, did you want to say anything on this? Well, I, if I can brag on Monty for a little bit, I, I'll share some experiences. Monty frequently gets um, requests from former colleagues, uh, former former people he has worked with, to examine their skills group. It's a concept he brought in decades ago, and um, people still contact him to uh, take a look at their skills grid as they're looking for to be promoted, looking to to change what they're doing. So he still goes back and forth with people on this, you know, even all these years later. And we see students doing the same thing now as they're, as they're going out. And some of them have never thought about it. It's, it's hard to believe how many times students get to their senior year. They're getting ready to graduate. You ask them, what is next? And they say, I don't know. I'll start looking for a job after I graduate. It's almost hard to believe. Mm. But it, when, when they go through the, um, the, the processes that, that uh, Monty and John have started that I've joined in with, uh, looking at their skills grid, looking at their five futures, they start to think about, hey, what can I be and what skills do I need to get there? They're going in in a much different prepared way. And then we see them getting jobs. We see them getting multiple job offers uh, as they go through this. So I think both historically for, for people who have been in industry for a while and for the new students, it's, it seems to have been successful. Yeah, it yeah, certainly just, does. It certainly does. Go ahead. You're going to say something more? I was going to add to that. I think... We, we tend to teach people, in, if you major in chemical engineering, have a degree in chemical engineering, you know, I have to be a chemical engineer. And what we stress is you have a certain set of skills you've uh, acquired, and they're just wonderful skills for life. 
but there's so much more. So over the years, I found many people that start off in a technical role end up in business or finance, uh, new business development. And so engineers very often will spend their first few years and then go off and do any number of things. And getting more technical experience combined in the business, marketing, customer side is absolutely invaluable. So over the years, uh, uh, many people I work with in, 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 in past companies, we used to do these little skills grid discussions as part of their annual discussions on where they want to go, what they want to go do. And it's just been really interesting to hear over the, you know, what they've done and how things have evolved. And one of the activities we've also started, there's a couple of them in class, we started having just calling on Zoom. And not calling it to be a recruiter, but to call and say, hey, I started off, I was a chemical engineer. Here's what I started doing. Here's what I learned. Here's how my career took a left-hand turn and how I went from an industrial company to Amazon or how I went to Google or Facebook. Because there are a number of chemical engineers I've worked with have migrated off into, in, into, into, into a very, in, very different world. And when they call in, they talk about things they've done. They've also talked about the failures and learning. And so we, when we do this, we say, call in, but we want you to call in as a friend of the family, not as a recruiter, not as someone evaluating someone, but call in and share your experiences from the future perspective where a student may go someday. And again, the discussion is just wonderful because when you've had experiences, it's not the things you've done well, it's the things you've learned through failure, you know, things that didn't work out, those experiences are very often more, you can gain more insight from those uh, activities than, uh, than successes. Well, you know, one of the things we've seen with this skills grid, for instance, uh, in, in applying it, when the students are listing, okay, what are the roles I've been in and what are the skills I have in technical and in leadership and in business and in marketing and in innovation and in learning itself, they come to see that these different roles have... Uh, they've learned things, as Monty just said, in these different different roles. It helps them pull the juice out of the things they've already done. And then after they complete the skills grid, they say, wait a minute, I see a couple holes on this, uh, on this chart. Here's a hole, here's a hole. I better gain experiences in those areas. And so now the follow-up, just to get back to what John was saying about you know, having all this data available so you know what needs are, are required, all the videos that are available, I can go learn the things that, that I need to start to fill those in and gain future experiences in that. So if you want to learn about customers and, and innovation, one place is that you could go to Steve Blank's videos on, on how to start a company. And there's so many of these videos. It's incredible. Well, let's talk about how the AICHE is going to be helping you support your efforts and what your plans are for going forward. Monty, you're the uh, you're in the 2020 president of the organization. Maybe you could talk a little bit about that. Sure. So the AICHE actually is in a perfect position to to help us build out this model because AICHE spans companies and universities, has student members, you know, all all different uh, backgrounds. And so, in the over the last year, we've talked, we've had several board discussions, uh, allocated some funds to pilot some uh, uh, new approaches on how we might build this model out. So this idea of career discovery is one, one element of it. It's how do I start thinking about the skills and experiences I wanna to have to move forward? But the other part of it is how do we then build an integration from the workplace back into the university and connect those two worlds? 
And if you look at the RAPID, which is a, is a major initiative in AICHE, all of the, the practices are already resident in RAPID in this process intensification space. So our discussions have been, how do we take RAPID, AICHE Academy, and how do we bring together a community to discuss how might we build out a model like this and, what, and have AICHE be this connecting platform? And just for the sake of listeners like me, what is RAPID? Maybe you could talk a little bit about that. Oh, it's, it's a, uh, it's a uh, partnership of companies and the Department of Energy uh, looking at process intensification. So it's publicly funded and privately funded. And students work on projects at universities and at companies and uh, in, in, in several different areas. And so there's a natural university uh, business partnership that emerges. One of the things that's really great about RAP is they have an internship program where the interns, wherever they are, they get together on uh, periodic calls for training. So the training is not the technical training of the project. It's, it's some of these other concepts we're talking about. So this, this model of collaboration and sharing is, is already uh, embedded in this, the whole rapid uh, manufacturing institute. And just to um, uh, go I, ahead. I just wanted to, I want to add to that a little bit. There's a lot of discussion today about how do we bridge the university, workplace, the valley of death, different cultures and timescales. Another thing that all of us have, have come to realize is we're missing a huge opportunity because students essentially go out into the workplace and come back. When students go out on an internship and come back to the university, they've learned an enormous amount. And we are trying to figure out how do we learn from them what they experienced on the job? How do we put that into our classes? And then more importantly, when a student goes out on an internship, what problems did they run into? What, what are the needs out there in the marketplace? How do we turn that into an innovation session back here at the university to take some of the research underway, develop new projects, and have it maybe morph into a new research activity, a startup company, or some other initiative? But essentially, the idea is let's use students as the as a connecting fluid between these two worlds, because they're already doing this. We just have to design practices that make this possible. And this is a subject we we worked on. Is career discovery is is the starting point about what do I want to do? But then building this model of interaction all the way from learning how to implement things in the world to basic science and innovation and providing an environment for uh, collaboration, sharing, and learning is is what we see the future to be. Now, can just I, a can wrap. I add that really quickly, sure. Because as somebody who's not an AICHE member, that um, it's in a really, really perfect position because right now, um, going back to something Daryl said, that if you see these holes in your skills grid, do you work actively to fill the holes, or do you work to accentuate your strengths? It goes very much back to the same question. If you're a musician, do you practice what you're good at or do you practice what you're bad at? Mm. And that's a really important discussion to have. And if you're 20, 21 years old, the internship and the mentoring you get from these people that could be via the AICHG becomes incredibly powerful because people will listen to career advice from people they respect. Meanwhile, people who are alums and people out in the workforce say, hey, Here's all the dumb things I did when I was 25. Maybe you can avoid some of them. I'd really love to help you out. And so the student chapters of the AICHE are really becoming powerful locations for a lot of this learning. And we've found that out a number of times on this program because we've talked to a lot of people involved with the student organizations. It's very robust and very strong. Let's wrap this conversation up with uh, – 
the simple question, how can individuals, companies, or educators out there get involved or start applying career discovery methods right now? What's the best way to get started? Well, what we've done is we've put together a little summary of how it all works. It's, and we've started running what we call career discovery sessions with uh, different groups. And we're currently sharing this with various groups around uh, the university here. Anyone can go do this. And so we're looking to try and build this out through different schools and want to partner with people, companies, universities, and get others doing this, and then use those results and learnings to share across a broader network. Uh, I think contact information, some of the details we've talked about will be in the, in the, in the podcast. Uh, yeah, in the show notes caption. for the website. Yeah. yeah, there'll definitely be some links there. Well, I appreciate you guys spending time with me today. Um, thank you to John, to Monty, and to Daryl. Thank you. Thanks very much. Thank you for having us on. We really appreciate it. Enjoyed it. Thank you. Our guests today have been Dr. Monty Alger, Dr. John Jordan, and Dr. Daryl Veligal. For more details about the topics we discussed or to find out more about the Doing a World of Good campaign, visit doingaworldofgood.org. And that does it for this episode of Doing a World of Good. If you'd like to subscribe to this podcast, search for us on your favorite podcast directory or visit doingaworldofgood.org. On behalf of everyone at the American Institute of Chemical Engineers, I'm Bob Norp. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.